1: Hey, welcome to the Brian Hyde Show. I am so glad once again to have James Harrigan joining me. Uh, James is co-host of the Words and Numbers podcast with uh, his co-host Anthony Davies. And James, I don't know if you knew this. There's uh, there's an election fast approaching. Had you heard about that? Get out, get out of town. <laughs> Well, actually, I've been following uh, your commentary on Twitter, particularly. Um, I have not been able to find time to watch the Democratic Convention. Any event if I had time, I'm going to confess, I probably wouldn't be watching. Um, I, I just try to find something else to do. Politics leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I know you've been paying attention, though. And actually, you're starting to bring my interest in uh, in the electoral season around what is your perception of what you have seen thus far in the Democratic Convention, and and what kind of notes should we be taking away
2: from it? Well, I, I just want to say right off at the start that I watched the convention, so you don't have to. Right? Just tune in on Twitter. I'll, I'll, I'll water it right down to you, right down to brass tacks, and you can move on. Thanks for taking but the hit for this us. One, yeah, that's right. The uh, The Democrats have called this one the unconventional convention, which, you know, from a marketing perspective, is a fantastic thing to call this. Right. And and they're offering this new approach in the dark days of the covid where, you know, everything's televised. Everybody's in a room by themselves and, and this sort of thing. And it's a it's a prescription for disaster, really, except here's the weird part. The Democrats are making this work and they're making it work really, really well. Um I'm, I'm of a mind that any time a couple of Democrats get in a room together, they're about to cause a big problem. So maybe sending them off to their respective corners and putting the camera on them individually, is, maybe that's the real thing they should be doing. Uh, we'll get a sense of it next week when the Republicans do the exact same thing. But it's awfully hard to imagine the Republicans doing a better job or even clo- as close as good a job as the Demo- Democrats are doing right now. It has been an absolutely impressive thing that they have packaged up.
1: Now, before we go any further, then, I, I just want to make sure that the audience understands we're not talking to uh, James Harrigan, lifelong Democrat, water carrier for the Democratic Party. Um, I, James, I to your credit, I don't know what your political affiliation is. I, you know, you strike me as an independent thinker, and I'm not asking you to commit for the uh, audience today. You know where you lean, but the fact that you're following this, and the fact that you're actually saying, "Look, there are some things they're doing right," that's intriguing because there aren't a lot of people out there who who are saying that, other than you know. some of the mainstream press or perhaps some people within the Democratic Party.
2: Right. And if I could narrow it down for you, I really don't like Republicans and I really don't like Democrats. That's about where I sit. Um, So I'm not expecting the Democrats to be hitting home runs here. And they absolutely are. It's really been something to watch. They're all quite reasonable. And if you've been watching, you know, all the, the fringe progressive left of the party, they've all been silenced. Uh, AOC got herself exactly one minute to introduce Bernie Sanders. And that's been the extent of the progressive left involvement in this convention. So already you see that, okay, they're running counter to type, they're playing to middle America, which is exactly what they should be doing, but You know, if you follow these sorts of things, you could easily predict that they wouldn't be doing it. And if even if they were, they wouldn't be doing it well, but they're doing it quite well here. It's been very, very compelling. And I'm watching it with other members of my family as a a bit of a a gauge on this sort of thing. And I haven't heard any one of them say anything negative about what they've been seeing, which is indicative of something, right? Five Harrigan's in a room, nobody's complaining that that's like a miracle.
1: (laughs) Well, and, and if, if I heard correctly, um, you know, the, the Democratic Party actually began their convention with the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, did they have the, the Star Spangled
2: Banner? Did they have a prayer? Did I hear that correctly? They did. They, they had all three of those things. It, it kicked off with the pledge. It moved on to a rendition of the Star Spangled Banner and then a prayer. And not only a prayer, Brian, not the generic kind of prayer that you usually hear, but a prayer that mentioned Jesus by name. Wow. Which is which is a little weird for our, our Democratic friends, right? They're usually trying to push that into the background. But right from the first moments of the introductory material, you saw what they were trending towards, right? What their goal was. And look, I, let's be honest. These are politicians. They're not doing any of this for the purest of reasons. They're doing this to win. But I'm shocked that they're doing it at all, oh, which I, is where it gets really too. interesting. No, and,
1: and and if if it uh, from what you're describing, it sounds like they're they're stealing the thunder. This is exactly the thunder the Republicans were, were banking on using in their favor. They hate America. They hate God. They hate everything you stand for. But, but uh,
2: you know, I mean, I f- I almost feel bad for the Republicans, almost. Well, they visited this kind of thing upon themselves when they selected Donald Trump and then turned a blind eye to what he did for the next four or so years. So I don't feel all that bad for anybody when it comes to politics, but they are. The Republicans are at this point painted into a bit of a corner and it, the Democrats have been so relentlessly positive. Right. The message is always a positive one. Um, that I, I don't know what ground the Republicans can can take at this point, besides being the cranky uncle in the room. Right? They're just not going to be as compelling if they play to type. And I think they're going to because I think they can't do anything. But but re- remember, I would have said that about Democrats four days ago. So you know anything here is possible.
1: Well, I, you know, I was pleasantly surprised, and I, I'm not a, I, I can't say that I, I am a fan of Donald Trump. He has uh, surprised me in some ways by not being as big a monster as I was told he was going to be, but at the same time, he has done some things that I actually found impressive. Uh, his July 3rd speech at uh, Mount Rushmore, um, I understand it's a politician making a speech, so take it in the context of, you know, they're just words, but I haven't heard those kind of words from a president uh, probably since Ronald Reagan.
2: Yeah, Reagan was another one who was relentlessly optimistic, right? The, uh, the United States for him was that shining city on the hill. It's what we remember him saying, right? He just couldn't help himself. So to think that a, a present day Republican might be optimistic at all is is a bit of a shock. Um, I could go a little further. I do think that speech was actually quite good. And I can go a little further and say I think his um, his nominations to the Supreme Court have been outstanding. Uh, I don't I don't think I have much else good to say, but I will say those things unambiguously. I think how could you deny that? OK, so having said that, would it be
1: a good thing for Donald Trump to be repudiated in this upcoming election? And if so, why?
2: Well, yeah, that's the interesting bit, right? The the election's going to go one of two ways. I think we're all pretty clear that a third party candidate is not going to be winning this election or any other election anytime soon. So really you know trump either wins or he loses and and that's interesting enough but if he loses he's going to lose by a razor thin margin or a gigantic one and here's where it gets really fascinating because if he loses by a razor thin margin which is i think very plausible you're going to see a bunch of his followers and maybe even him himself saying that there was something fishy With the election, that it's somehow uh, the presidency is being stolen from him and his followers will buy that hook, line and sinker, whether it's true or not. And and we will get a real problem coming out of an election that he loses by a razor thin margin. If, on the other hand, he loses by a very significant margin, we will have no problem. And I think we'll be able to put the downsides and there are many downsides of the Trump presidency behind us very quickly. Okay. So there's your there's your list of possibilities right there. He wins, he loses. If he loses, he loses big, he loses small. And, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to put these on the table because that's really all there is.
1: At the risk of sounding conspiratorial, Joe Biden doesn't strike me as somebody who's in this for the long run. I mean, uh, what was it? You you coined the phrase Joe
2: the, the that awkward yes.
1: silence, you know, of he the just forgot where he was going. Be-
2: <laughs> That's right. The awkward silence between the time you were asked a question and you answer the question is from here on a joment. OK. Um, and he's of course, he's not playing it for the long term. He'd be the oldest president in, in our history walking into the office. I think this is why his choice of a vice president was so important, because the, the chance is well, not zero that he doesn't live through that first term. right. He's that kind of old at this point. And I think we all see a little bit infirm of mind. Um, So who knows what's going to happen there? But we'll get to that in the next segment, I suppose.
1: Yeah, because I definitely want to pick your brain. I mean, look, you're you're actually sounding a very optimistic note, and I'm grateful for that. I need some optimism right now. The thought of uh, Kamala Harris uh, succeeding Joe Biden, uh, whenever that may be kind of pulls the optimism right out of me. So we'll come back to that in a few moments. My guest is James Harrigan. We will continue our conversation just the other side of these messages.
0: is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Our program
1: brought to you in part today by firesteel.com as well as the Staples Turner Group at Patriot Home Mortgage. Appreciate them sponsoring the show. If you have any need whatsoever of what they have to offer, I would encourage you do some business with them. And better still, tell them I'm here because I heard Brian saying nice things about you. I just couldn't resist. James R. Harrigan is my guest, and we're talking about uh, the upcoming election. And uh, James, I got to tell you, you you have a little bit different take on this, uh, being more independent minded. So th- you have my attention here. You're telling me the Democrats are not only doing some things right, but uh, there are a lot of things the Republicans are doing wrong. And talk to me about the, the possibility. If we get to Kamala Harris in there as president sometime, assuming Joe Biden wins, I I'm, I don't think he's going to be. I'd be surprised, frankly, if he makes it through the, uh, you know, uh, Inauguration Day banquet. But what kind of uh, is she going to be that uh, radical iron fisted uh, ruler or are the other Democrats pulling her
2: back, you know, to a more reasonable place? Well, you know, the the old saying is when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. And Kamala Harris has shown us who she is in a very unambiguous way over uh, over a giant chunk of her own lifetime. And I frankly, I find her terrifying. Uh, I, w- I would find somebody in the White House with With her very distinct views on law enforcement and how things should work underneath that portion of the United States program, Boy, it's a real concern and, and we and you see where decades of law and order style politics have gotten us. Right. I, mean, I think I said this on your program last week. The United States of America imprisons more of its own people than any government on the planet. And that's per capita, not raw numbers. Right. We are so much worse than every other country uh, on the planet that this is a remarkable thing. Um, and I think the American people are starting to figure that out and starting to figure out ways that they might like to chip away at that. But Kamala Harris sitting in in the big chair in the Oval Office, I think, would probably put the brakes on any sort of reform that we would get down that avenue. And I, I would think that that would be quite horrible. It's really time for us to address this problem. Hell, it was time 10, 20 years ago, but it's absolutely time. And I suspect that that would get pushed to the back of the room very quickly in a in a Harris administration.
1: You know, and that's that is the concern that I have. Um, Again, I'm not a Trump supporter, but I find myself being pushed more into his corner simply because of people like Kamala Harris and and some of the some of the the leading Democrats who've allowed things like what we've seen happen in Portland and Seattle and other places take place. Uh, I don't believe Donald Trump is the answer to our prayers. I, it's, it's like he's he's the dare dare I say it the lesser of two evils. He's he's less of a monster than than she appears to be. Um, maybe he would make the ongoing evisceration of our liberties a little less painful.
2: Yeah, I would assert that it's it's not the lesser of two evils. It's the evil of two lessers. And, ooh, ooh. you know, yeah, I I think that's more or less the right way to think about this binary choice that we we've now got. I don't see a way that it works perfectly at all. Right. And I think there was a way Joe Biden had a tremendous opportunity sitting in front of him when it came time to, to pick a vice presidential candidate, because we all kind of know that You know, the thought of Joe living eight years or being of firm enough mind for eight years to do the job is unlikely, to say the least possible, but unlikely. And had Joe Biden early on, you remember, he said he was going to pick a woman. All right. So that kind of limited the pool. But working in that pool, I remember thinking the best thing, the smartest thing he could do right now is pick Condoleezza Rice. Get over to the other side of the aisle, pick a moderate Republican woman and say, this is this is the way I plan on uniting America. And I think he would have brought so many Republican voters to his, his side with that pick that we wouldn't even be talking about if Joe wins. We'd be talking about when Joe wins. And if you've been watching the um If you've been watching the events over the last couple of nights, the convention on TV, you are seeing a number of Republicans show up. Right. John Kasich shows up as a Republican, um, is treated, I think, very kindly, does a very nice job uh, in his slot. Colin Powell shows up. Former Secretary of State Colin Powell. Right. This is these are people who actually matter. And, and maybe they don't have the best track records of being card carrying Republicans, but they each spent a fair amount of time in the Republican Party. We have to take them seriously. They are serious people. So Biden does seem to be doing everything he can to reach to the Republican side. At this moment, and it's almost it's very reminiscent of those Reagan Democrats that Reagan fostered on his way to two landslide elections. Right. So we'll see if Biden can can bring history back on itself. I don't know that he can under the present circumstances, but he might.
1: You mentioned the uh, the binary choice. And, and I'll admit, I became a cynic, I don't know, a couple of election cycles back. I realized they're giving me a choice between, you know, bad and worse. And I don't really want to play that game. I hate being on the horns of a dilemma. But talk to me about, uh, about voting in general. Um, do we put too much faith in voting? Does it actually matter if people get out and vote? Or are we better off using our time and effort to solving problems in some way other than through politics?
2: Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at what you just asked and, and the easy answer is there's always a better way to address your problems than politics. And that starts with something as simple as introducing yourself to your neighbors, right? We've become so isolated even in our own homes. I moved into my home a year ago. I haven't even seen my neighbors. I don't even know what they look like, right? So there's an easy answer for you. The harder answers are much, much harder. So. I would have to say as a political scientist, I could say this all day long. Your vote, your singular vote will never decide anything. If you decided to stay home for every election from now until the day you died, nothing would be any different than it would have been with your participation. So does your vote matter? No. Okay, let's go to the other side of this. Because earlier I said Trump can lose big or lose small. And if he loses big, that changes things. Well, he only loses big if lots of people don't vote for him and vote for Biden. So does your vote matter? Sure, it does. Okay, pick whichever one of those two things you like, because that's that's the weird part, right? These things are antithetical. These these observations um, don't allow for the other one to even be possible. And yet, here we are. They're both true. So there's. There's always this tension when we think about voting. Is it worth your time? Well, I don't know. How much is your time worth, right? And your answer is going to be your answer, but there are ramifications whichever way you choose.
1: I like your suggestion that it starts a little closer to home than probably most of us realize, and, and I agree wholeheartedly i've made the effort, to, especially since the whole uh, lockdown stuff started to really reach out to my neighbors and I mean in the sense of is there anything you need you know if, if if your kids need diapers and we happen to see that there's you know diapers available, do you want us to grab some for you That kind of stuff. having said that though um, I am I'm alarmed at the tribalism that goes with politics, and it always gets worse as the election cycle, you know, comes up to full speed. Um, any thoughts on whether or not that tribalism can be helpful, or is it always just going to be what it is, you know, a contest to see which way the spears are going to be pointing when the dust settles?
2: Yeah, I think it's more the latter, truth be told. The the good part about that is that after the election is done we tend to get away from that pretty quickly right it's this weird set of circumstances coming into an election everybody digs in behind their preferred candidate and they make crazy assertions right my candidate's right about everything is what it all boils down to and every human being knows that's ridiculous nobody's ever right about everything um so you know take it with a grain of salt I would prefer if we weren't so tribal walking into this sort of thing. But walking out of it, it's really never all that bad. So I I take it with a grain of salt. I don't worry about it too terribly. All right,
1: James Harrigan taking the heat for us by watching the Democratic Convention. James, what's your Twitter handle?
2: It's at James R. Harrigan. All one big, long, torturous word. This...
0: Is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. I want to
1: mention that our show is brought to you in part today by FireSteel.com. It's really that simple. You go to FireSteel.com and check out their website, and you will find the finest fire-starting materials you've ever seen. Now, when I say fire-starting, a lot of people think, oh, matches, they must sell matches. No, this is, this is far superior to matches. It's even superior to a Bic lighter, which is kind of tough to improve on because you get that instant flame and everything. No, this is a far better thing. It is a flint and steel, so to speak. I'm, I'm using layman's terms, but it's a striker. It strikes sparks. It includes these incredible rare earth minerals that give you this incredible shower of sparks. The point is, it works when matches and lighters won't. And best of all, one of their gobspark starters will actually take the place of 15,000 Matches. How many matches can you carry anyway, right? And you have to worry about them getting wet? Not so with these incredible products from FireSteel.com. Something everybody should have in their survival kit, their 72-hour kit. Just have one in your vehicle. If you need to start a fire for a survival situation, you need it to work. FireSteel has your back. And by the way, when you go to purchase one, mention my name at checkout. They'll give you a place for the coupon code. The coupon code you put in is Brian with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N, and they'll give you 10% off your purchase. Firesteel.com. All right, let's begin with a little discussion of living beneath our means. I know there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of, um, you know, economic and financial Turmoil going on around us right now. People have been put out of work, or their businesses have been shuttered, or I don't know. Opportunities drying up. Tough times are here. Okay, we're we're not waiting. Well, they may come eventually. No, they're here right now, and for a lot of people, it looks like uh, it it could get even tougher. And I'm not saying this with with any kind of assurance that yeah, but you know, I'm going to be spared. I think all of us are likely to feel the pain. Of the fallout, not just of the the COVID shutdowns, but the incredible effects of of creating money out of thin air, inflating the money supply, and thereby robbing the purchasing power of every dollar that a person has saved. I think I feel the worst for the people who are on fixed incomes, like my dear old gray-haired mama, who uh, is unfortunately, you know, she's trying to get by as best she can on a fixed income at 85 years old. And inflation? steals the purchasing power of every dollar. What she paid, you know, ten dollars for this year, could end up costing her fifteen dollars or more, you know, in, in the next year or the year after that. Scary stuff. But there is something we can do, and this is this program is about empowerment and about to being able to take action as well as understand the world around you. So what can we do? How about live beneath your means? Daisy Luther, who is the organic prepper, I notice she's also uh, uh, writing for The Frugalite. She has some solid advice, and I will include her article in the show notes as well, so you can check that out. She says, well, many people advocate living with within your means. She says, I don't think that's enough. In fact, she says, I'm a proponent of living beneath your means. Now, within is great because it signifies a lack of debt and only spending what you can afford. But she says, living beneath your means is even better because it signifies that you have quite a bit left over, for dealing with a rainy day. I mean, that makes sense, right? Living beneath your means may not sound like a lot of fun. It sounds as though a person doing this is stuffing coffee cans full of dollar bills into spaces in the walls or darning socks till they simply can't withstand another repair or eating cold beans in a darkened room. But she says in reality, it's not like that at all. Learning to live beneath your means can bring you a kind of peace that you never felt before. It can help you survive financial crunches, both large and small, it can teach you to take joy in simpler things instead of always looking for the next thing that will give you a surge of happiness. That one really spoke to me because I've, I've been there before where, man, I, once I can purchase this, this is going to make me happy. And you know what? More times than not, once I've purchased the item, and usually it was something gun-related, wow, I've got this now and it's in my hands. And then uh, after a few minutes of, you know, endorphin release, well... Things kind of suck because oh I've achieved what I wanted here I've got what I wanted but now there's still that that sense of I need more. And as as uh, Gary North would tell you, more is a is a very jealous God to serve. <laughs> it's never satisfied. So some people are great at this. Daisy Luther points out, she says, it may be elementary to you, but she says, hang in there because there are some graduate level frugality ideas on the way. And we're going to start off with the fundamentals and then move on towards the high level PhD thrift from there. She says, others have gotten themselves into a pickle. Maybe they want to figure a way out of it. Some have cut down to the bare bones and they're still having trouble. So if you're not making enough money to pay your bills, this is information that could be very useful. But she asks, how do you go from a lifestyle in which every dime goes out to one in which there's money left over each month? Well, here are a few tips to help you make the transition to a more peaceful financial lifestyle. Many of these tips will work, she says, even if you've already begun having financial problems. But some of them are preventative measures geared toward making a lifestyle change when you aren't yet under the gun. Number one, she says, assess your budget. First thing you have to do is actually look at reality and see it for what it is. Get a clear picture of what money goes out each month. If you use a debit card for everything, well, that's incredibly easy. Now, if you use cash or a combination, you're going to have to spend at least a month taking notes of where your money's going. And then she says, print out your records for the last two or three months, and then plug the numbers into a spreadsheet. Pick the one that looks like it'll work best for you. She actually has uh, 12 or 10 different types of budget spreadsheets. But she says, once this is done, you'll have a clear picture of where your money's going. Now, this could be a painful step, but it's essential. Next, you want to calculate your fixed expenses. That's the baseline of your budget. These are the expenditures that don't change for most people from month to month. Things like car payments, rent or mortgage, insurance, gym memberships, cell phone bills, cable, Internet. You get the picture. Now, you may not have all of those bills, and if not, that's great, But if so, you may want to make some adjustments. You need to know that magic number because that's how you're going to set your budget. Now, this number may not be final, but she says it's important to know if you lost your job right this minute, how much would your output be? Next, she asks, what are your bad habits? After you plug in your numbers and you can see them in black and white, it's time for a grim dose of reality. This is the hard part. She says when you're taking a look at what you're going to take a look at first are those little random expenditures that siphon away money subtly. The $5 here, the $10 there, you might discover you spend three or $400 each month for the daily lunch that really didn't sound like that much in individual increments. But when you add the daily $5 dollars drive drive-through coffee or an afternoon bottle of water, ends up exceeding $500 a month, half a thousand. That's a lot of money. Maybe you smoke or you drink alcohol outside the home on a regular basis. Well, do what you're going to do. She says, I'm not going to tell you to stop smoking or drinking, but look at how much you're spending in order to do it. Maybe you buy a giant soda pop every day for a couple of dollars. That adds up too. Her point is, nearly everyone discovers they have at least one bad spending habit in this part. But she says, don't beat yourself up, fix it. Just imagine what your life would be like with the money you blow on cigarettes or drive through coffee or giant fountain sodas or happy hour tucked away waiting to help you through an emergency. And she says, unless you give up some of your bad spending habits and replace them with something more fiscally responsible, it's going to be very tough to live beneath your means. Then she says, it's time to start slashing. That means you start to, she says, do it like Jack the Ripper on a foggy London night getting rid of these bad habits is probably one of the easiest ways to cut fun thun- to cut your spending rather find a substitute that costs less now this is a process not everything has to be cold turkey especially if you're not in a bind but if times are tight you may need to dive right in and be relentless and immediate in your cost cutting so look at your drive through coffee lunches out bring your lunch if you're smoking, you may want to cut back or stop. If you're drinking, again, consider limiting it limiting it to special occasions, maybe once or twice a week. Water. Do you buy a bottle of water every time you walk into the gas station or a store? Do you hit the vending machine at work to buy one? Do you know you could buy an entire case of bottled water for the cost of two or three individual ones? Stash cases of water in your car or in your office. Use that to quench your thirst. Pick up a little water cooler for your office if you like cold beverages. And she says, after the initial investment, it will cost you pennies to what you spend before. Now, that's just a few ideas, but these are all pretty solid. She goes on to talk about uh, looking to cut your fixed expenses if you can, getting rid of debt. And she has some great worksheets and, and graphs that go with this. She says, once you do these things, you'll be much closer to living beneath your means. But this is just the beginning. She says you could free up a bunch of money. You may have discovered you have a lot that could be freed up, but that extra money could be enough to change your life or help you weather the storm on the horizon. So I'll have a link to this article. Again, this is from thefrugalite.com. This is where Daisy Luther, who also blogs as the organic prepper, is giving some very, very solid advice. I think the hardest part, at least for me personally, is looking at uh, those little expenditures, the snacks. Oh, the snacks, how they add up, and then determining, how can I cut this back? But there is something to be said for the peace of mind you feel when you see the money, your money that you're saving, grow just a little bit each month. It's really
0: solid advice. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back.
1: Thanks for being part of our growing troop of wrong thinkers. And, you know, as far as wrong think goes, I think that uh, one of the things that uh, that just sticks out at me that makes this time unique in human history is how many people feel that it's virtuous to be seen as a victim. If you see yourself primarily as a victim, that is uh, supposedly the way to get yourself Power and control over other people, and the victim mentality is actually taught as a virtue. This is what critical theory is all about. This is what intersectionality is all about. And political correctness thrives on victim groups and oppressor groups. And yes, I understand. I'm it, to, to some people, all I'm doing is I'm just sitting here mansplaining as a cis white male, you know, who's uh, who has no room to say anything. How dare I do this? Why? If I would just see myself as a victim. Well, then people could take me seriously, or so the conventional wisdom goes. Great article on the Foundation for Economic Education. This is by Dr. Rainier Zeidelman. Victim mentality doesn't help anyone. Just ask Ray Charles and Stephen Hawking. Whoa, ho, ho, ho. I can tell right now this is this is going to be an eye-opener. Let's see what he has to say. He says, according to a dominant ideology, a person's identity is largely based on one's status as a victim of either racism, sexism, ableism, etc. But does encouraging people to see themselves primarily as victims actually help anyone at all? Dr. Zeidelman asks, doesn't it just make them feel helpless and remove their sense of agency? Because the message they're being given is your life situation is the way it is. For structural reasons, so you have no chance to change it until the structures are torn down. Now, he says people always talk of structural causes, but they never fully explain what they are actually referring to. They basically mean capitalism. It's the system question, which essentially boils down to, as long as we don't succeed in abolishing or radically overhauling the capitalist system, you simply don't stand a chance. Talk about a message that makes people feel helpless. He says, wouldn't it make far more sense to highlight examples of people who've managed to make it to the top despite facing seemingly insurmountable difficulties? Oprah Winfrey, for example, who rose from humble beginnings to become the world's first black self-made billionaire. Left-wing classism researchers whom uh, Dr. Zeidelman critically addresses in his book, Rich in Public Opinion, unequivocally refuse to engage in this debate. In her in-depth work of classism research, Framing Class, Media Representations of Wealth and Poverty, Diana Kendall criticizes media coverage of people from lower rungs of society who've risen from poverty to wealth. In fact, she highlights the real-life story of Oprah Winfrey as one particularly negative example. According to Kendall, when the media portrays outstandingly successful people like Winfrey, they tend to overemphasize the importance of hard work and the right mindset or personality traits. Kendall criticizes the fact that such media coverage perpetuates the myth of the American dream. Given the long odds against such an outcome, emulation framing not only creates unrealistic expectations given economic and social realities in the 2000s, but provides an excuse for those who are better off financially to deride those who are not. Well... Kendall also laments that news items sometimes create the impression that the poor are partly responsible for their plight because of a certain action like taking illegal drugs or maybe not looking for a job. Underpinning this criticism is a concept of humanity that's based on the idea that people are responsible for neither the positive nor the negative outcomes in their lives. Media reports of rags to riches stories and the wealthy are criticized because they sometimes give rise to the impression that success is due to personality traits and individual effort. Dr. Zeidelman says at the same time, news items on the poor are criticized because they perpetuate the impression that people are at least partly to blame for their fate. From the perspective of Kendall and other classism researchers... The capitalist system and structural injustices are always to blame for making people rich or poor, while reporting on individual causes is branded as an attempt to blame the poor for their fate. Let's talk about another example of success here. Uh, Dr. Zeidelman says, I'm currently reading the incredible autobiography of Ray Charles, the high priest of soul, who had a huge influence on the stylistic evolution of rhythm and blues, country, blues, and soul. Rolling Stone magazine ranked him second in its list of the 100 best singers of all time after Aretha Franklin, but ahead of Elvis Presley. Ray Charles grew up in poverty and without a father, and his mother died at the age of 31. He went blind at the age of seven. Nine months earlier, he'd witnessed his younger brother drowning. Racism was something he encountered rather every day. One afternoon, he decided to go out for a swim off Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. He suddenly heard his friends back on the beach screaming for him to come back to shore. Because he was blind, he couldn't see that he was been, he'd been about to cross the line between the black side of the ocean and the white side of the ocean. Now, what impresses Dr. Ziedelman most about Ray Charles was his philosophy on life. In his autobiography, Ray Charles wrote about how important it was for him as a young man to understand how things worked. If I got into trouble, he said, that was my doing. Or if I did something halfway worthwhile, I could take the credit. Responsibility came awfully early to me. Now, for much of his life, he was a heroin addict. He could have blamed others, seen himself as a victim. Instead, he said, no one did it to me. I did it to myself. It wasn't society that did it to me. It wasn't a pusher. It wasn't being blind or black or being poor. It was all my doing. When someone cheated him out of a lot of money, he didn't get furious or bitter, as he explained. He said, it taught me to keep my nose closer to the books. And when he was found guilty of possessing illegal drugs, he admits, I stood accused. And I couldn't plead anything but guilty. I saw the bust as my own doing. How about Stephen Hawking? The physicist Stephen Hawking suffered from an extremely rare medical condition amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, a disease that causes the nerve cells of the brain and spinal cord to atrophy and then scar or harden. Now, his doctors told him this incurable disease was likely to end his life within a few years, and he wasn't just confined to a wheelchair. He also lost his ability to speak. He had to use a computer program and a speech synthesizer to communicate verbally. Nevertheless, he became perhaps the most famous scientist In the world, traveled the world, met with popes and presidents and wrote a succession of international bestsellers. The key to his success was a positive attitude to life. He was determined to see the positives in his disability. Now, Dr. Zeidelman says in Stephen Hawking's autobiography, he writes that it freed him from having to lecture or teach undergraduates. And it also meant that he didn't have to sit in on tedious and time consuming university committees. Instead, he was able to devote himself fully to his research. In his opinion, disabled people should, quote, concentrate on things that their handicap doesn't prevent them from doing and not regret those that they can't do. He said, in my case, I've been able to do most things I wanted. Franklin D. Roosevelt, 32nd President of the United States, suffered from polio, paralyzed from the waist down, which meant he could hardly walk on his own, yet he observed men are not prisoners of fate, but only prisoners of their own minds. Now, that doesn't change the fact that, uh, you know, the fact he was paralyzed doesn't change what he said was true. The barriers that keep us from achieving greater things in our lives are the ones we've set ourselves. They're the ones in our minds. And Dr. Zeidelman says if we succeed in tearing down these barriers, we can achieve so many of the things we don't even dare to dream of today. Improving your life is not a question of waiting for your external circumstances to change. It's a process that begins in your head. From psychological studies, he says we know that six unsuccessful people see themselves as victims of external circumstances and believe that their lives are determined by factors beyond their own control. Successful people, on the other hand, tend to focus far more on the things they can influence and change. They see themselves as creators of their own destiny. He finishes by pointing out the first attitude is a victim mentality and leads to passivity. And discouragement, the second attitude leads to activity and motivates people to make an effort on their own and he says, "You decide which of the two attitudes do you think will give you the best chances of making it in life? What a great article again, I'll include this in the show notes you'll also find uh, you know the the contact information uh, for uh, James Harrigan, who was in the first two segments of this hour. You'll also find the article from Daisy Luther about living beneath your means." I think this is all solid information. It's a privilege to be able to bring this to you day in and day out here on this program. Check out the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. I always include articles. I don't have time to get to everything that I am looking at in the the course of, you know, pulling the show together. Sometimes uh, I can make it work. Sometimes I just put those articles in there and hope that you'll find them interesting enough that you'll, you know, click on it, read it, and, and run with it. If I could ask a small favor. If this show is bringing value or truth or light or anything of worth into your life, could you please do me a favor and just tell a couple of friends about it? Share it on social media. Let other people know about the uh, the articles, the guests, the general uh, positive, uplifting (laughs) dialogue that takes place here on a day-to-day basis. It would help me immensely as we try to, uh, to help the show grow and expand. But more importantly, it will help get information out there that hopefully is providing needed intellectual nourishment for a world that, uh, that really appears to be starving or at least being force fed a lot of fear and anger.